Exploring the intersection of medicine, sports, and pop culture. This is the Doctors Are People Too podcast. Here's your host, Dr. Josh Belfer. Welcome to the second episode of the Doctors Are People Too podcast. I want to first start by thanking you all for such an enthusiastic response to our first episode and the first part of our conversation with Dr. Michael Harrison. We are officially an international podcast. We have listeners from across the globe, including Poland, India, and even Australia. We've heard from many of you through our Instagram page and through email. Please continue to send your comments, questions, and guest recommendations. So thank you for your support as we continue to grow this podcast. And now, here's part two of my discussion with Dr. Michael Harrison, aerospace medicine specialist. We talk more about commercial space travel and what the future has in store. Enjoy! Are there any other experiences or any other research that takes place in space that can then subsequently help us here on Earth? Yeah, um, there's a, a lot that's been going on uh, on the space station. That's the really cool thing about the International Space Station is that once its construction was complete, it became an orbiting science lab. Um, and the astronauts that go up there are heavily involved in in research of all kinds. And medicine is, is one of the the areas that they're they're researching heavily. Uh, cancer cells behave differently in space. Stem cells behave differently in space. Uh, we're learning a lot with things like the the twin study, where Scott Kelly went to orbit for a year and Mark Kelly stayed stayed on Earth. We learned a lot about uh, genetics and genomics there. So there are going to be a lot of breakthroughs that come out of space that apply to to everyday folk down here. Mike, a few minutes ago, you you talked a little bit about the challenges of stocking a pharmacy and and what's available to astronauts in space. My question is, how reliant are astronauts on medications when they go to space? You know, the astronauts are not going entirely just to have fun and look at our solar system and look at the other planets when they're up there. But, you know, like you just mentioned, there's a lot of research, a lot of uh, work that goes on when they're in space. So how reliant are they on medications to combat some of the, the symptoms like headaches, like you mentioned, the dizziness, vomiting, even back pain? You know, is it the same sort of thing that mean you wake up with our back hurting, we pop a, a couple Tylenol and, and go on with our day? Yep, very similar. Um, and to the same extent as what you and I are, right? If I was to ask you, have you taken any medication in the last six months? At some point in the last six months, you would have tweaked a knee or had a headache and would have popped a Motrin or a Tylenol or not felt well and taken a Gravol or something like that. Um, And so what you discover is that astronauts are regular people. And when they spend six months working and living in space, at some point, they're going to have something that doesn't feel the way it normally should or perfectly well. And so there's some literature that's looked at this. And somewhere between 80 and 90% of astronauts use something from the formulary that's up there over the, the course of their mission. And the vast majority of what they use is small stuff, right? It's a, a Motrin or it's a, a Tylenol or it's a, a Tums or, or something like that. But they are they are using something. And if we shift to talking a little bit about procedures that, that are done in space, whether that's urgent procedures, whether that's emergent medical procedures, such as a resuscitation, What are the unique challenges that astronauts experience in this realm in terms of, say, doing CPR on a space shuttle in zero gravity? It would also be very challenging. Unfortunately, it hasn't happened, and we hope that it never does. 
but I think it's probably going to be inevitable the, the deeper out in space we go that we're going to have a, a medical emergency at some point. The CPR is a, a great example of how challenging it is, uh, and it all goes back to, to Newton's third law, right? For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And so when you and I do CPR here on Earth, gravity keeps us anchored to the floor, and we're able to, to push down on the patient's chest and, and do so 100 times a minute. But in a zero gravity environment, if I push on the patient's chest, the patient's going to go one way and I'm going to go the opposite way. And doing that 100 times a minute is not necessarily easy uh, with what you would expect from a, a terrestrial configuration. Um, so the space station's got uh, a platform where you would secure the patient um, to one of the surfaces. Uh, and it's an electrically isolated platform. So that, that way, if you do defibrillate the patient, you're not giving everybody a little bit of the jolt, and you're able to, to do chest compressions. There are a number of different uh, techniques that have been tested, and they've been tested in parabolic flight um, in the, the so-called vomit comet. Um, and the techniques range from handstand, uh, where the person providing CPR puts their feet on the ceiling or the, the wall opposite um, the patient, and then reaches above their head uh, and does compressions that way, using their, their feet to, to anchor themselves and push back. Um, there's one that looks like a Heimlich where you're sort of behind the patient and squeezing them. It's hard to say which of these is, is going to be the, the most effective. It's going to be different than what you see here on earth, but there are people that are, are doing this research, but it, it's even more challenging with just simple stuff like drawing up a, a medication, right? If we're involved in a, a code here on earth, we've got a pharmacist that's rapidly drawing up medicines and handing them to us. And, People are attaching IV bags to the IV lines, and we're able to, to run a bolus and run it quickly and reload if we need a, another bag pretty pretty quickly, and everything goes seamless. What happens in space is microgravity wreaks havoc with fluids uh, and with medications. And so here on Earth, I'm able to draw medicine from a, a vial because the gravity makes all the fluid come together and makes it go to the lowest point. And so I just have to get that manipulated so I can get the needle into it and drop the medication. In a zero gravity or a microgravity environment, surface tension holds that fluid together and it's just gonna float around inside that capsule or the, the vial until I get a, a needle into it. And I may not be able to easily manipulate where that is so that I can get the, the needle into it. And then it's gonna have bubbles inside it. And so you have to come up with a way to either spin the, the bottle enough that the, the bubbles come out and the surface tension goes to where you want, um, and you get a collection of fluid that then doesn't have bubbles because you don't want to put a bubble into an IV because when that gets into the, the vasculature, that bubble can actually cause an ischemic event. And so with small medicines, there's small doses of medicines, it's not that big a, a challenge. And if you're doing a, an intramuscular dose of a, a medicine, then you don't have to worry about the bubbles. But if you've got a liter bag of saline, then suddenly you've got bubbles all the way through it and getting those out is a challenge. And one of the ways that that's um, addressed is that we would run it through a filter if we had to in space. It would address those bubbles and not allow the bubbles to pass through and, and get into the, the venous circulation. But that limits the rate at which you can, can run fluids. Um, and so you're going to run them at a, a much slower rate than you would here on Earth. And so things like cardiac arrest and sepsis, hemorrhagic shock, things where getting volume and resuscitating as quickly as possible is the, the name of the game suddenly becomes a little more challenging. And we could probably have a whole nother conversation on technology and its use of technology in the space shuttle. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about ultrasound. My ultrasound mm -hmm. colleagues would love to hear that astronauts are learning and 
practicing ultrasound on the space shuttle. What can you tell us about that? So just recently, I believe it was it was within the last six months, uh, Butterfly sent a couple of ultrasounds to the space station on a SpaceX resupply mission. I think it was uh, resupply 22. Ultrasound is the perfect medium for space travel in terms of diagnostic imaging, as well as a procedural adjunct. So it's small, it's portable, it's lightweight, doesn't require a whole lot of power. It's not associated with any radiation, which is good because they're already being exposed to radiation simply by being in space. And the deeper out we go, the more radiation they're likely to be exposed to. And then the other reason it's good is if you've got a novel use or a novice user using the, the ultrasound, you're probably not going to nail it the first time with the picture that you absolutely want, right? There's going to be some corrections and a learning curve that goes along with it. And so if you have a, an imaging technique that requires radiation, that suddenly becomes bad for the patient. Uh, but if you've got something like ultrasound where somebody can do a, a telehealth or a just-in-time training video and show you what the, the image is that you're trying to get, how you're trying to orient the probe, you can practice all afternoon and not hurt anybody with it. Um, you're not going to give them a, a big dose of radiation. You're not going to cause any pain by, by doing ultrasound. And you can use it pretty much anywhere on the body, right? You can do ultrasounds of the eyes, ultrasounds of the heart, lungs, kidney, liver. You can do musculoskeletal ultrasounds to look for sprains, strains, uh, effusions around joints. You can even detect fractures with it. So it's, it's very robust. It's very cheap, very reliable. Um, and you can put it in the hands of pretty much anybody and get good results. And we've got some data from here on Earth. Um, I talked about Haiti as a, an example. There's a, a really good study out of Haiti. Um, where they had an ultrasound uh, that they were using in a hospital after, I think it was an earthquake or a mudslide, um, and the hospital was short-staffed. And so they had anybody that they could find obtaining images and sending them back to the United States to be read by a radiologist. And one of the individuals that they had using the ultrasound and obtaining the images uh, was the janitor. And the radiologist was satisfied. They were able to make a diagnosis uh, and impact care of patients based off of images that were obtained by the, a member of the housekeeping staff. That's really That's fascinating. Powerful. Yeah, I think, yeah. Uh, you know, adding evidence to the, the argument that ultrasound is growing, growing in importance, and especially in critical environments. You, you did remind me of how I felt when I started my training in, in ultrasound. And, you know, I didn't really know what I was doing. And my teachers were able to gently manipulate my hand to get the best image. Yeah. And, you know, the patient's there. The patient knows I don't know what's going on. My teacher knows I don't know what's going on, but you learn. That's how you learn. That's the beauty of ultrasound. So it's nice to hear the same thing happens in space. It's going to be the, I think it's going to be the stethoscope of the 21st century. There was a time in COVID where I used the ultrasound. I had a butterfly in my white coat and I used it more than I used my stethoscope. I, I was getting more information off of what I was seeing with the ultrasound clinically than I was auscultating a patient. That's fantastic. And Mike, we talked a, a little bit about commercial space travel and how that is changing the field of aerospace medicine. Uh, I wonder if you could expand on the idea that we have a changing demographic of individuals who go to space. You know, I've heard arguments from both sides in terms of this is not a great thing because, you know, we, we pick out our astronauts for a reason. But then I understand the flip side that there's a lot to learn when we're sending people who are potentially more representative of the population we have here on Earth. What's your take in terms of the changing demographic uh, of space travelers? I'm excited. Uh, I think it is what's going to become normal for the, the next generation. I'm excited for anybody 
who's got kids less than 10 years old right now um, because it's during their lifetime that I think space travel is going to become more routine, right? We're, we are very similar to where the world was in 1910 and 1920 when transcontinental and transatlantic flights were novel. Not everybody could afford to go on them. Not everybody wanted to go on them and everybody was, or people were concerned about what's the health risk of flying this high for that long from here to there. And now nobody thinks twice about it, right? You get on a, a flight, fly from here to there for a weekend and it's, it's not a big deal. I think that that's where we may end up with space travel in the next hundred years. And I think it's, it's very exciting. I think it's exciting that we're sending people that have some health conditions that we wouldn't previously have sent. And if you go back and pull Dr. Barrett's textbook uh, on space medicine, has got the disqualification criteria for astronauts uh, for both Canadian Space Agency and NASA. And you'll be amazed at some of the things that are on there. Um, things like asthma, reactive airway disease, you don't really think a whole lot about in terms of it being a, a massive health concern, but it's disqualifying to be a, a professional astronaut. So there are a lot of conditions that we're going to start sending to space that we hadn't previously thought of with the, the professional astronaut corps that we're going to learn a great deal from as a result. And some of the professional astronaut corps are starting to, to change how they look at it. Um, the European Space Agency is currently in the, the midst of a recruitment program, um, and they had a, a recruitment program that included astronauts with physical conditions that previously wouldn't have been um, considered for spaceflight. And I'm talking things like unequal limb lengths and things like that. We're going to see space travel is eventually going to become for the, the vast majority of people. That's not to say that there aren't going to be hiccups along the way. I think there are going to be some challenges. I think we're going to be surprised by some of the things that we learn. I think we're going to be surprised about some of the conditions that don't do as well in space as we thought that they were going to. And I think we're going to be very surprised about some of the conditions that we thought were absolute showstoppers and there's no way I can send this to microgravity that may not do as, as poorly as we thought, or maybe we're going to come up with a, a novel way to mitigate it. And then the exciting thing further to that is the new mitigation strategy that we've developed for space travel. How does it apply to here on Earth? It's going to be exciting. There's there's no Certainly. no way around it. Certainly sounds very exciting. And Mike, as we wind down, I, I want to continue looking to the future. If we have this conversation in 50 years, 100 years, 150 years, what do you think the biggest changes to aerospace medicine as a whole that we will experience? So in the very near future, I think the biggest change that we're going to see with aerospace medicine is how our training programs change. Right now, there are two institutions that provide civilian training programs for, for a board certification pathway. University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston has got one of the training programs, and they accept anywhere between one to four residents per year, depending on the pathway that they're going through, and Mayo Clinic, uh, who accepts one trainee per year. And so figure a graduation year is going to have somewhere between one to five new graduates per year that is now board eligible and able to go out and practice aerospace medicine as an aerospace medicine specialist. That market is changing. And we see it. SpaceX currently has a, a posting for a operational flight surgeon. Uh, about a year ago, Axiom was hiring a couple of doctors. NASA was hiring a couple of doctors. Virgin Galactic had a posting, and SpaceX had a posting then too. So at one brief period of time, there were somewhere between five to seven job openings for board-certified aerospace medicine docs to work in the space industry. Since then, 
we've done a, a number of launches. Um, a number of different companies have come on board, right? Blue Origins had their successful launch. Since then, Virgin Galactic's done it as well. SpaceX has sent a, a private crew. Axiom set up to, to send a private crew here shortly. As more and more of these companies come online and start doing operations, there's going to be a bigger and bigger demand for somebody to, to look after these folks and to make sure they're as healthy as possible so that it's not an event where we're surprised. Um, what I liken it to is somebody that decides, right, and we're just after New Year's here, my New Year's resolution might be I'm going to run a marathon this year or something like that. But that doesn't mean that you show up in October in Chicago to run the marathon. You do training for a period of time. You try to get yourself into the best shape that you can so you truly enjoy the experience. And if you're going to spend anywhere from three days to two weeks to a couple of months in space, you want to do the training so that you enjoy it. So you want to get your health to the, the best level that you can so that when you drop however many thousands or millions of dollars it costs for this once-in-a-lifetime experience, it truly is an enjoyable, memorable, once-in-a-lifetime experience and not one that you suffer through. So that's in the, the very near future. In the, the distant future, I sort of wonder if we're going to go the other way, that instead of um, having more and more specialists, maybe everybody is somewhat specialized in aerospace medicine because it's become so normal that now you can just go to your general practitioner and be certified to, to fly to Mars or, or whatever planet we're going to in 150 years. So I have no idea. I think it's, again, it's going to be very fascinating. It's going to be very exciting. Uh, and the pace at which some of these changes and developments are going to occur is going to be unpredictable. It's all really fascinating. You mentioned SpaceX and Axiom. Those are two companies that you've worked with in, in your career. Do you have a, a memory or two that you could share with us from a, a fun perspective in terms of uh, a memory that you'll always remember working in, in space travel? Yeah. So Crew-1, uh, I worked the, the Crew-1 launch for SpaceX and NASA and was fortunate enough that uh, when the astronauts departed for the pad, my role was to go from the, the suit-up room to the recovery vessel in case there was a, an event uh, that we had to deploy and, and rescue astronauts. SpaceX allowed families, uh, our families, anybody that was working the mission to have their families come down and watch the launch. And so my wife has got a, a picture. Uh, I didn't know she was taking it at the time of me in my flight suit and I'm walking uh, with our, our three kids. Um, and so it's it's exciting that right, they're all under the age of 10. So they are the generation that I'm talking about that space flight might become routine and to have them there to, to watch the first uh, long duration commercial space flight launch was incredibly exciting. And Mike, your Twitter bio states that you're proving every day that Peter Pan syndrome can pay the rent. I think our conversation, you know, proves that to be true. And I have to ask you, I've been waiting to the end, but you did reference it earlier. There's been a, a long history of physicians becoming astronauts. Are you next on the list? I don't know if I'm next on the list, but I know that I've been applying. I've been offering. I've been asking. I've been all the way down to, to begging. Um, so if the opportunity ever came up, I would, would seize it with both hands and uh, be very excited. The flip side to that is if I never get to fly, I'm having an absolute blast doing what I'm doing and wouldn't trade it for, for anything. And I think that's, that's the key to life, right? Find something that you truly enjoy, you're passionate at, and you'll be good at it. And you'll be able to, to do it for the rest of your life with no, no regrets. 
great words of advice. My final question to you is one that we ask all of the guests on the show. For those who are interested in pursuing a career in your specialty in aerospace medicine, what advice do you have for them? Get involved. Um, I was amazed at how small a community aerospace medicine is, how receptive the, the vast majority of the folks in the community are, how interested they are in what the, the next generation coming up is going to do for humanity and for space flight. Um, and there are a number of ways to get involved that people may not know about. Um, they're not terribly well advertised, but the Aerospace Medical Association has got an annual meeting every year. Uh, there's a, a resident and student organization within the Aerospace Medical Organization that has a growing population and a pretty robust group of supporters and mentors uh, amongst the those that are, are board certified and have been practicing for a while. So there are opportunities to get involved that way. NASA's got a, a human research conference that occurs every January or February in Galveston that I believe used to be free to attend. Uh, and it, it showcases all the research that NASA's doing in human uh, spaceflight. So medicine, physiology, biomechanics. Uh, and it's a, a fascinating way to, to see what's going on and to, to meet the folks that are, are there. So don't be shy, get involved, show some initiative uh, and seize the opportunity. Well, Mike, this has really been a pleasure. Thank you for taking the time out of your busy day. I've certainly learned a lot. I think our audience will learn a lot. So Dr. Harrison, thanks for joining us on the Doctors or People 2 podcast. Hey, no problem. Thank you very much for having me. I really did have a blast discussing aerospace medicine with Mike. There's just so many things that I would never have thought of. How to do CPR in space, even just the difficulty of drawing up a medication. I didn't discuss it with Mike, but there's also a number of bioethical issues that come into play when we talk about aerospace medicine. When it comes to triaging and contingency planning, some of the principles are the same ones that the military uses. Did any of you ever read The Martian? Maybe you saw the movie. In the story, Mark Watney, who's an astronaut, is presumed dead on Mars after a storm. Well, it turns out he's actually alive, but the rest of his crew is already on their way back to Earth. What happens when we get a Mark Watney situation? Maybe even more realistic, what happens when a crew member gets sick? What's the balance between using your resources to save your fellow crew member and ensuring a successful completion of the space mission? These are some of the things that we're going to have to continue to work out as we continue moving forward with space travel. You know, we hear a lot about commercial space travel. Elon Musk has talked about becoming a multi-planet species, with that second planet presumably being Mars. And for all that's talked about with regards to building the technology to get to Mars and figuring out how we live there, I think in my discussion with Mike, you saw just how many other things come into play. It's one thing to be on space mission for six weeks, even six months, but what happens when it becomes two years? What happens when it takes 20 minutes to contact mission control? As Mike said, these are the issues that will continue to challenge aerospace physicians for years to come. And I think it's fascinating. And that idea about every doctor being trained to manage medical issues with space travel, Mike may very well be right. That is certainly the direction we are heading. That's going to do it for episode two of the Doctors or People 2 podcast. Thank you for listening and be sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. And make sure to share it with your family and friends. Follow us on our Instagram page at Doctors or People 2 podcast. Do you have a question or a comment on the show? Maybe a guest recommendation? Direct message us on our Instagram page. Until next time, this has been the Doctors Are People 2 podcast.